Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
Good to see you all this morning. Glad that you're all here. Jeff changed the order of the songs this morning, and he said to me, oh, well, that song that you had chosen for just before the message, did that go with your message? Is that going to change anything if I move these songs around? And I said, no, it's fine. You can move the songs around all you want because there simply are no hymns that go, hey, it's the Antichrist. We don't like him. What a disappointment. He's a bad guy. There just there are no songs that go that way. And so I said, let's just concentrate on Jesus. And so we're singing a lot of songs this morning about Jesus. We are in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. Last week, we dealt with the majority of the chapter. We'll get into chapter 13 today, and we'll be introduced to the first of two beasts. I'm going to start reading from chapter 12, verse 1, because it is necessary to remind us again about the details of the red dragon, because when we do meet the first beast in chapter 13, you're going to see the same characteristics described with one very important difference. So we are going to start reading at chapter 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. When we get to chapter 13, the difference we're going to see is in the number of diadems. Because the seven crowns are on the seven heads. Last week we identified those seven kingdoms as the seven historic kingdoms that have ever ruled over the Middle East, ruling specifically over Israel. Do you remember what they were? They start with Egypt and then comes Assyria. Assyria. It's a good thing Tom was here. After Assyria is Babylon, after Babylon is Medo-Persia, Medo after Medo-Persia is Greece. Greece, and Alexander the Great, after him is Rome. Rome, and then the seventh is the Ten-Toed Kingdom, if we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar's statue imagery, or he's referred to as the nondescript beast in Daniel's vision. He is known as the little horn because there are ten horns designating this loose confederacy of ten nations, ten kings. And then the little horn rises up, takes three of them by force. The other seven apparently just give him the authority. Those are the seven kingdoms. That's why these seven heads have seven crowns. Now this is really, really important to hang on to. Because later we're going to read that one of those heads is wounded as unto death. 
It's a very important concept. Ever since, I don't know, Ronald Reagan, I think, was the first one that I remember where he got shot and he lived and people started saying, Antichrist, he was wounded and he lived. And then the Pope got shot. And then people were, well, there it is. That's clearly the Antichrist. And what do the heads represent? Kingdoms with kings over them. And one of those kingdoms is wounded as unto death. As we're going to see this morning, during the time that John is writing, he is told very specifically, there is one that used to be that is not during the time that John is writing. That would be when Rome was in power. And then he said, and it is to come. So it used to be, it is not now, and it is to come. That perfectly correlates and aligns with the idea of one of those kingdoms and the demonic force that lay behind that kingdom was not at the time that John was writing used to be and will be again. That's the significance of the wounded head. So you have to understand what these seven heads represent and why they have these seven crowns because they specifically represent kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel that will really help you. That little hint I just gave you is really going to help you with the balance of the next couple of verses. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so you can't tell the players without a program. Who is the child here who is caught up into heaven, who's going to come back and rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Who is that? Jesus. That's Jesus. Who gave birth to Jesus? Who is the woman who gave birth to Jesus? Israel. Israel. Who is the red dragon? Satan. Satan himself, the devil and Satan. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power, the dunamis, and the kingdom, the basiliah, of our God and his authority, the authority of his Christ has come. The exousia, the absolute dominance, 
the sovereignty of God is demonstrated in the fact that his son Christ, who is no longer just a baby in a manger, but coming back to rule and reign, to smash nations with his rod of iron, who returns in a blood-soaked robe and has a name on his thigh and on his vesture that no one knows. But he is king of kings and he is lord of lords and he is coming back to establish his kingdom. And when that happens, we're going to see the absolute salvation and the absolute power, the establishment of the kingdom of God and the authority, the exousia of Christ who has come Why? Because the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses the brethren before God day and night. A major change in the political dynamic of heaven. At this very moment, Satan himself is able. He has access. He can get to God and he can still accuse you before God. That is why it is so important. John himself says, when we sin, we haven't advocate with the Father. And how effective is our advocate? Well, according to Hebrews 10, 14, all of those who he died for are perfected forever because of his intercessory work. So our lawyer is really good. In fact, our lawyer is the judge's son. So he has an in into the judge's chambers, and he's there to plead our case on our behalf because we're not capable of going to God and pleading our own case. After all, according to Isaiah, even our best righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. So really, what have we got to make a case with? What have we got to go to God and say, here, I got you this. I did this for you. I made this for you. Jesus even said that people who argue like that He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So, you're either going to be on the side where Jesus says, I never knew you, or you're going to be on the side where Jesus is your advocate in the high court of heaven. Choose B, that's a whole lot better. Amen. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. I know I talked about that last week a little bit, but I want to underline it. Big bold font, put some extra emphasis on it. Notice that it does not say they overcame Satan because of their hard work. They overcame Satan because of the level of their dedication and how frequently they did righteous things. There's only one way that you can overcome the fiery darts of Satan. There's only one way that you can get over the accusations that are going on all the time in the heavenly court where Satan himself is accusing you over and over again. And the answer to those accusations is not, yeah, but I, you don't get to complete that sentence. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. They overcame him because Jesus Christ was willing to be your substitute, stand in your place, 
and die vicariously so that you would not have to. He underwent the wrath of God so that Paul could write that we are not appointed to wrath. Everything about Christianity declares the Christocentricity of Christianity, that Christ is the beginning, Christ is the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is everything in between. Everything we know about our relationship with God has to flow through Christ and his finished work. And had he not shed his blood for you, you have no hope because you're simply not good enough to achieve the kind of holiness that God demands out of you. The only way to overcome Satan is to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony, I told you last week, that is the root word from which we get martyr. It's more than just testifying. It's more than just saying, yeah, yeah, I believe in God, or yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is laying down your life for what you say you believe. So the blood of the Lamb was shed on their behalf And they had the word of their martyrdom because they did not love their life even to the death. Certainly in John's day, at the time of Revelation, as he's on the Isle of Patmos, in the 90s AD, during the time that Domitian is Caesar in Rome, there was a whole lot of bloodshed happening because of Christianity. He knew what he was talking about when he said, They had the word of martyrs because to say you were a Christian out loud was tantamount to a death sentence. It's a little easier on us here, 21st century Americans. There's nobody waiting outside the door to kill us. I have often wondered if Christianity was being actively persecuted in America. If you could be killed for saying you were a Christian, I wonder how many people who call themselves Christians these days would continue in that. Once you know that Christianity is a death sentence, I wonder how many people will still say, yeah, but that's me. I don't love my life. I love Christ, and I will love him to the death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, And because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to the death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Look at the contrast here. There's partying up in heaven because Satan himself has been cast out of heaven. He no longer has access to the courtroom of God. And the heavenly realm is celebrating And during that celebration, the next sentence is, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath and knowing that he has only a short time. It's going to get ugly here on earth. You better hope that you're up in heaven being part of the party group, that you're up in heaven celebrating and worshiping God as God is doing the very thing that God said he was going to do. And we worship him because he is a sovereign God who does all the things that he has ever promised he's going to do. And that's the same reason they celebrate in heaven. They celebrate and worship God in heaven because he is the sovereign who does whatever he wants to do. He sits on his throne doing whatever pleases him, and he is constantly worshiped for being that kind of God. 
Therefore, we worship him for being that kind of God. Because one of the many things that he chose to do and that he talked about extensively was that he chose some people. And he is going to redeem those people because of the blood of the Lamb. Oh, I like a God who's able to say, I'm going to do all my good pleasure, and then has the power, the dunamis, and the authority, the exousia, to actually do whatever it is he says he's going to do. Oh, I like that. I don't like the idea of a God who can change his mind. Because once he got a good glimpse of me, I'm sure he would have. He would have changed his mind instantly and say, oh, I made a terrible mistake here. I chose Jim, and I didn't know he'd be like that. I didn't know he'd act like that or say that or think that. No, no, no. Quick, somebody, Michael, come here. Get me an eraser. I've got to get his name out of the Lamb's Book of Life as quickly as possible. Because if it was up to me, I'd completely wreck it. I'd completely destroy it. I'm so glad it is in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who can do whatever he wants despite me. Amen. And he chose to save me. And that's grace. Amen. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who did we just say the woman was? Israel. When he's thrown down to the earth, who does he persecute? Israel. Then God intervenes. Verse 14. And the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Time, time, and half a times. Three and a half. It's also 42 months. It's also 1,260 days. John is being very mathematic, and he's being very specific to tell you how long this time of persecution is going to be. But I told you when we began the book of Revelation that it is a very Jewish book. The more you know about your Old Testament, the more you're going to understand the book of Revelation. Here again, the emphasis is on Israel. When Satan is thrown down to the earth, he persecutes Israel in particular, but God intervenes on their behalf in order to help them get to the place that is already established for them in the wilderness. You go to the book of Daniel, and you can find out where that place is. It's Moab, it's Ammon, it's Edom. That is the wilderness. They are told to run there because specifically Daniel says that the little horn doesn't get there. And so it is described here as two wings of an eagle. Last week, I showed you a couple of examples from the Old Testament where God, in delivering people, said that he did it on the wings of eagles. And so here he is delivering Israel in particular on the wings of eagles in order to get them to the place that specifically Daniel has talked about, Jesus himself said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it should not be, then flee to the wilderness. So whether it's Daniel, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Revelation, it's the same description of the same event, which is Israel fleeing out of Jerusalem, fleeing out of their land, and fleeing into the wilderness. 
And because of the wrath of the dragon, chasing after the woman, she's on the run to the wilderness. But verse 15 says, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. So it's more than just a river of water. It's flowing like a river, but it's a flood. Okay, now, if you would, Tom, turn to Numbers 16.30 for a moment. Who else wants to read? Steve, if you would, turn to Jeremiah 46. You're going to read verses 7 and 8. Micah, you feel like reading something? Isaiah 8, 6 to 8. And actually, Steve, you're going to be first. Let's talk about this flood for just a moment. Because in the Old Testament, I think we all know that there was actually a genuine literal flood in the Old Testament. If you know anything about Noah or an ark or two of every animal, you know that that was an actual literal genuine flood. God has the ability to bring about actual floods But here, the reference to Satan bringing a flood, a river of water after the women, may be, it might be, an actual flood of water. There may be a flood that rises up in the Middle East there, being a rather dry, desert, parched kind of area. Perhaps it's a flood, or perhaps this is John's poetic description of trouble, of danger that is chasing them as they are fleeing, because that is also the way that the flood language is used in the Old Testament. For instance, Steve is going to read Jeremiah 46, verses 7 and 8 for us. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. There, he's talking about Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, and he describes it with flood language. He's going to rise and cover the earth. He's going to rise and come against them like a torrent of water. So the Old Testament does describe both a literal flood, in Noah's case, and describe an allegorical flood, as in Egypt's case. Micah's going to read Isaiah 8, 6 to 8, and here again we're going to hear that language of flooding. Because this people hath refused the water of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on unto Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of the land over the Okay, so God is saying, because you didn't like the gentle waters that I gave you here in Canaan, the king of Assyria is going to come down on you. And he described the king of Assyria as a flood. The flood language that John is using here, he might be speaking of a sudden onslaught from the devil and from his armies, or he may be speaking of a literal flood of water that is chasing these people as they are traveling. The evidence in favor of a literal flood is in verse 16, because in verse 16 it says, the earth helped the woman... And the earth opened its mouth 
and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So if the earth were to cleave open in a very earthquake-type way, and the flood waters were to go down into it, that's something that we also see in the Old Testament because in the matter of Korah and his band, the earth actually did open up under God's command and cleanse Israel by destroying not only Korah, but his family, everything he owned. That's what Tom's going to read for us. It's in Numbers 16. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Okay, so in the book of Numbers, actual Israel history, actual physically, God actually opened up the earth, took these people and their possessions and their family straight into the grave, straight into Sheol, straight into the place of the dead and use the specific language of the earth opening up its mouth to receive them. That's the same language John uses here, that the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. That all sounds very physical to me. So whether you want to say that the flood is armies, trouble, pursuit, that happens as these people are fleeing into the wilderness. That is certainly one understanding of it. But I've been reading the book of Revelation in a much more literal way so far. And so I prefer the literal interpretation of this because if Satan himself wants to do a miraculous flood, can he do that? Yes. Well, apparently he can. And so if he brings about an actual flood, to drive these people, to persecute these people, to drive them out of their land. And then the earth opens up the same way it did in Korah's time and swallows up that flood in order to preserve the saints of God of Israel who are running to the wilderness. That's perfectly fine with me, and I actually prefer that interpretation. The consequence of that is, verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of her offspring? Israel. Israel. That's all they can be. So there are some from Israel, the remnant that God is keeping, who are going to see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple where it should not be, and they're going to understand their scripture. They're going to understand Daniel. Perhaps they'll even remember what Jesus said at that point. They're actually going to flee into the wilderness. But some are going to say, Jesus who? Some are actually going to align themselves with the Antichrist. And he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God. Very interesting because Israel, of course, would be keeping the commandments to this very day. But then part of their description is they also hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the devil is going to persecute Israel. In particular, he's going to persecute Christian Israel. Okay, is there such a thing during this time of trouble and tribulation as Christian Israel? The answer is yes. What were the 144,000 doing all this time? 
They were the testimony of Jesus. They had the seal in their forehead. They were the ones that were out there testifying of Christ. What were the two witnesses talking about? They were out there witnessing to Christ. So apparently they have some converts within Israel during the time that they are out there testifying because we have a perfect description here of Christian Israel as those who hold the commandments of God, but they also have the testimony of Jesus. So apparently the work of the two witnesses and the 144,000 is actually successful work. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and this time, instead of there being seven diadems on the seven heads, this time there are ten horns, ten diadems, which designates ten kingdoms, exactly like Daniel described, that there would be a succession of kingdoms and finally a loose confederacy of ten nations. And out of those ten nations, the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid portion of Alexander the Great's kingdom, out of that area of the world is going to rise this little horn who's going to take three by force. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Names that are the absolute opposite of everything that God considers holy and righteous. Now that seems like an outrageous statement, that on his heads he's going to have, I mean he is Satan after all, but on his head he's going to have these names of blasphemy. Let's just Take a quick reality check here. Uh, can you think of anything going on in our society right now that the Bible says is blasphemous? <laughs> yeah, that was easy. Yeah, in fact, there are things that are currently protected by our political system and called human rights that the Bible calls blasphemous. So when this one rises up, this beast rises up, and he has these seven heads with the names of blasphemy on his heads. Do you think most of the world is really going to be upset by that? No. No, of course not. They are already very accepting of terribly blasphemous things. They're going to be comfortable with it. And in a moment, I'm going to show you that Paul explains why it is that the whole world is just going to accept him. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now I'm going to really tax your memory, because several weeks ago, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of it, and then a vision that Daniel had of a series of beasts. The first beast that he saw was a lion. Do you remember who the angel said the lion represents? Because it's right in Daniel. I'm just checking to see if anybody here actually pays attention or do any of you know who the lion is? Because I told you just a couple weeks ago. Who's the lion? Wow. 
Please, I am so done here. I just... The lion is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember who defeated the lion? It was a bear that was lifted up on one side. Who was that? Medo-Persia. And of course, one of the kings, Cyrus, became more powerful than Darius the Mede. That's just history, but it is represented in the book of Daniel as a bear lifted up on one side. Then there was a leopard with wings. Not just fast like a leopard's fast, but with wings on it, ultra-fast leopard. That's not the terminology that was used in Daniel, ultra-fast leopard. But that's the description. Who was that? Alexander the Great Great in the Grecian Empire. Was there a similar beast for Rome? No, the answer is no. It went right from Alexander the Great to the nondescript beast. Now, first it said he had great iron teeth. That might have been. But then we go right to the nondescript beast and the ten-nation confederacy in the book of Daniel. Okay, so pay attention to verse 2 here. Now that you know all that, now that I've reminded you of all that, see if you can make sense of this. Verse 2, because we're describing this beast that comes up out of the sea, having these ten horns and these seven heads, and on these ten horns there are ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan himself, gave him his power and his throne and his authority. So now we know that the beast is going to have a throne. He's going to have power and authority. But we know that it's going to be satanic power and authority. But he's going to have particular characteristics about him. The one that I saw was like a leopard. Who does that connect him to? Alexander the Great. Now, I contend, hang with me here, that when John was told this beast was, is not, and will be again, he was talking about the same demonic power that drove Alexander the Great, who did not exist during the time of Rome, which, by the way, here's an interesting factoid in the Bible. Babylon. Name the king. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Medo-Persia. Name the king. Cyrus. Cyrus. Greece. Name the king. Alexander. Alexander. Rome. Name the king. Bunch Bunch of them. We don't know. It's just a whole line of Caesars. There's some better, some worse, but there's none in the Bible. All the others are designated for us. All the others, there's a chief king that we have to pay attention to. When it comes to Rome, eh, jump ball. But then when it comes to the ten-nation confederacy, name the king, the little horn, the beast. And so it's very specific when John is told, the beast that you see was, is not, will be again. Because here, the beast which I saw was like Alexander the Great. He was like a leopard. And his feet, very specifically, were those of a bear. What do you do with your feet? You stand someplace. 
Where was the Medo-Persian Empire? Where's Persia? Quick. Iran. Iran. It just changed its name to Iran in my lifetime. It was always known as Persia. Where, by the way, is Babylon? Mesopotamia, Iraq. Iraq, Iran, Transjordan, the Middle East, that's the area of the world that we're talking about. That's the area of the world where his feet are planted. That takes us all the way back to Abraham, who decided to go into a tent with Hagar. Well, he didn't decide. His wife kind of conjoled him. And he went into a tent with Hagar, and he produced Ishmael, who we're told in the book of Genesis was going to be a wild donkey of a man. And that he was going to be against all men, and all men were going to be against him. Does that sound familiar? It's still true to this day in the world. God knows what he's doing. Sovereign God knows what he's talking about. And the people from that area of the world are the people who are dedicated to blowing Israel off the map. That's right. And they say so on a regular basis. It's one of the reasons they're trying to get nuclear weapons to this very day. Because this beast is going to rise up and stand in that very area. The place of the Medo-Persian Empire. But then interestingly, look at what he talks about. He talks with the mouth of a lion. Who's the lion? It's Babylon. His mouth is from Babylon. He talks from Babylon. All the way back in the book of Genesis, you see the Tower of Babel. That's the beginning of Babylon. At the end of the book of Revelation, you see Babylon has fallen. The whole scope of the Bible makes reference to Babylon. Why? Because it is out of Babylon that the vast majority of the mystery religions of the world arose. And they're still with us to this very day. And it's become so inculcated into our culture and into the societies of the world that we don't even see it. We don't even recognize it anymore. God sees it. God knows it. God knows how truly corrupt and sinful this planet has become and how it has fully embraced the thinking, the philosophy, and the religion of Babylon. That's why it's so significant that we do read that Babylon has finally fallen because it's been holding sway over this planet ever since the Tower of Babel. So the beast coming up out of the sea was like a leopard. That connects him to Alexander the Great. His feet were like that of a bear. So now we know where he's planted. He's coming up out of the Middle East. Has anybody here ever read the Left Behind books or seen any of the movies? Yeah. Because they claim that this character is going to rise up out of Europe somewhere. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, what's the name they gave him, Car Carpathian or something? Yeah, there's the Antichrist right there, the fictionalized Antichrist. Apparently, the people who wrote Left Behind didn't read their Bibles, which kind of seems like a mistake not to look at the source material before you write a fictionalized account of it. But... The Middle East is where he's coming up out of. No surprise, because that is the area of the world that exercises the greatest hatred for Israel to this very moment. 
His feet were like that of a bear, and he speaks out of Babylon. Of course, he's not going to speak Christianity. He's not going to speak Judaism. He's going to speak mystery religion. By the way, notice that that makes him a very spiritual character. I've met many people in my life who say, you know, I'm not Christian. I'm not into that Bible thing. But I'm very spiritual. Well, that's meaningless unless you identify the spirit that is driving your spirituality. And if God is not, if the Holy Spirit is not the spirit that is driving your spirituality, then you've just admitted to demonic influence in your life. And that's the kind of speech that this character is going to be putting out there, and the world is going to accept it because they accept it already. It's going to be familiar talk. It's going to be familiar ideas. They're just going to embrace it completely because, after all, they're totally inculcated in it right now. Now then, as we're talking about this beast, who Daniel also refers to as the little horn, Every once in a while, I refer to him as Antichrist. So let me be very specific about my terminology. Turn to 1 John, which is just before the book of Revelation. You're going to find the three short epistles of John. Turn to 1 John 2 for just a moment. And let me show you that John uses the language of Antichrist and what constitutes Antichrist philosophy and theology. 1 John 2, I'm looking at verse 22. The question is, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In other words, Jesus is the Christ is the truth. That's factual. Anybody who denies it is engaged in lying. So who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist and the one who denies the Father and the Son. So when John uses the language of Antichrist, anti in the Greek just means substitute or in place of, or to be anti, to be against. So John is answering the question, who is it that's against Christ? And the answer is anybody who denies God and Christ, anybody who says that Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, they are against Christ, they are antichrist. In the same book, go over to chapter 4, and this kind of ties into what we were just talking about. Chapter 4, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Boy, there's good advice. There's a whole lot of spirits in the world right now saying all kinds of things, all sorts of tangential voices all over the internet and TV and radio, saying all kinds of wacky things. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's from God. So anybody who's denying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, 
who actually was in the flesh. There is, to this very day, by the way, a uh, philosophical idea that Jesus was not actually flesh and blood, that he was just a spirit. That's called Gnosticism, and it still runs rampant in the world today. By denying his flesh and blood, they think they are protecting him because Gnosticism believes that flesh and blood is inherently evil, and in order for him to be the Son of God, in order for him to be deity, he could not take part in something that is so inherently evil. So he wasn't flesh and blood. He was just a spirit, just a phantasm that looked like he was flesh and blood, but he wasn't. Well, that kind of Gnosticism reaches all the way back to the first century. That seems to be what John is referring to here and saying that people who deny that are denying the God-man. They are denying the fact that he was, in fact, flesh and blood. By the way, if he was not flesh and blood, if he did not take on flesh so that he could be feeling all the feelings of our infirmities, if he did not have flesh and blood, then the crucifixion means nothing because he didn't actually die. He was just an ever-living spirit walking around on the planet, and then he just moved on. And so it is an actual denial of the core of Christianity to say that Jesus was not flesh and blood. That's what John's getting at here. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses, and actually that word should better be rendered professes, says in a positive way that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is of the Antichrist, of which you heard it's coming and now is already in the world. So John admits, okay, this spirit of Antichrist, this character that Paul calls this one of iniquity, this one who understands these dark sentences, this one who's going to set himself up in the temple showing himself that he is God, that very one is coming, but the spirit of Antichrist already exists in the world as demonstrated by the widespread denial of Jesus Christ. Go to the next book, 2 John right in the very first chapter. Well, there only is one chapter. But we're going to look at verse 6. Now we're going to look at verse 7. We can start reading at verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, so those are the three occasions on which John uses the phrase antichrist. And because he uses the phrase the antichrist who is to come, one of the nicknames that we use for the beast, for the little horn, is Antichrist. All those three words are all pointing at the exact same person. Daniel calls him the little horn. He's referred to here primarily in the book of Revelation as the beast. 
John refers to him as the Antichrist. So every once in a while, I might slip and call him Antichrist, and somebody somewhere out there on the Internet will be sitting at their keyboard and writing to me saying, but the book of Revelation never refers to him as the Antichrist. Yes, you're right. Stop typing. Go away and leave me alone. The fact is, John does make reference to this spirit in the world, this anti-Christian spirit in the world, as being the spirit of Antichrist, the embodiment of whom is going to come. And that is why I refer to the beast sometimes as Antichrist. Turn to 2 Thessalonians, because Paul joins into this language, and I think Paul is going to clear up some of these mysterious phrases for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but let's start reading at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? Oh, this is helpful. See, Paul, when he was in Thessalonica, wasn't afraid to talk eschatology. Because now he's going to remind them, you know, I told you all this eschatological stuff while I was with you. By the way, just from an interpretive standpoint, I will also add, nobody says that Paul's letters are apocalyptic. They read them very literally. And he says the same things that the book of Revelation says, which is why I read the book of Revelation very literally. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and now you know what restrains him? Well, restrains who? Now we have to go back again. I'm sorry. Let no one, this is verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasia comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that's his nickname for the Antichrist, for the beast, for the little horn. The man of lawlessness is revealed. Here's another nickname for him. The son of perdition. The NASB says, the son of destruction. Here's what he's like. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Okay, that sounds very much like what we're reading in the book of Revelation about the beast and his heads of blasphemy. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. We talk a lot here at GCA about the absolute sovereignty of God. Notice that even this Antichrist, this man of destruction, cannot arrive on the scene of history until God allows it because he has a calendar date when this man will be revealed. And he is actively being restrained at this moment so that he cannot be revealed until it's time for him to be revealed. That's a really sovereign God. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's the same thing John just told us. That this spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world in the denial of Christ everywhere and anywhere that you see a denial of Christ. That is the spirit of Antichrist at work. Paul just refers to it as the mystery of lawlessness. And it is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. 
Here's an easy one. Has Jesus returned yet? If Jesus has not returned, then we have not seen this man of lawlessness yet. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. What did we just read in Revelation 13? That the beast is given power and authority in a kingdom by Satan himself, by the dragon. Paul agrees, says the exact same thing. He is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Do you think the world at large is going to fall for somebody who just starts yanking out great miracles? Yeah. Yes, the world is going to flock to him. Look, people flock to people doing fake miracles. That's the whole Benny Hinn career right there. I'm sorry, did I say that name out loud? Well, it's on tape now. Too bad. There are people today who claim to be doing miracle services, and they can draw a large crowd because people just flock to miracles. He is going to do signs and wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And why do they perish? Why are they ultimately judged? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. What did Paul just say? He did not say they didn't choose Jesus. He said they didn't receive the love of Jesus. Where would they receive it from? From God. God has to grant you. God has to give you the ability to understand your own sinfulness and the superiority of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ. So everyone who's going to be taken in by these signs and false wonders and the deception of wickedness in all those who perish, it's because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. In a moment in the book of Revelation, if there's enough time left this morning, we're going to see that Satan comes down and persecutes the people on the earth, and then we're specifically told that those people on the earth are all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. So the book of Revelation and Paul's writing are exactly the same in saying that you have to receive the love of Christ from God. Your name has to be written in the Lamb's book of life. Otherwise, you're going to eternally perish and you're going to be left here on the planet so that Satan can have his way with you. Again, you don't want to be here for that. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And now look at verse 11. This is the kind of God too many people have difficulty with. But if you believe in an absolutely sovereign God who picks, chooses, elects, writes names down in the Lamb's book of life, then you're okay with verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged. That word is actually condemned, who did not take pleasure in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. What did Paul just say? He said, God, very specifically in a very sovereign way, 
elected certain people, wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those are the people that he is actively saving at this moment. But then there are people who God is going to give a deluding influence so that they will believe the wonders, the falsehoods, so that they will believe the Babylonish language that is coming out of the mouth of the beast so that they will follow him, so that they will worship his image, so that they will worship at the feet of the beast when he sets up his abomination that makes desolate in the temple. There's going to be people who flock to him, but that does not disprove the righteousness, holiness, or sovereignty of God. In fact, it's very in line with the absolute sovereignty of God because that is what God has already determined for them. That makes people uncomfortable. But it's what the Bible says. And you have to deal with it. You have to stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible actually says and recognize a God who is so holy that he gets to decide who gets to be in his presence eternally. And to guarantee that the rest don't even try, he gives them a deluding spirit so that they will believe the lie so that they will be condemned who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But, verse 13, I'm so happy for the big however right there. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Two camps, two groups. One are given a deluding spirit. One is given the Holy Spirit. One falls under judgment and condemnation because that's what God determined for them. And by the way, John is going to say the same thing in the book of Revelation, that everybody only ends up exactly where God determined they were going to end up. And the other camp ends up eternally in God's holy, righteous splendor and eternal pleasure simply because that's the way he decided it. And we just have to align our thinking with that kind of God. But now that helps explain to us why it is that this beast can come on the planet and why people are going to flock to him and listen to him despite the fact that he's just talking Babylon nonsense to people. And despite the fact that he's saying blasphemous things, and yet people are going to follow him because God has designated that very thing for them. I'm back in the book of Revelation. I've got to wrap up here. I didn't get anywhere near where I wanted to get this morning. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads. What do the heads designate? I'm going to drive this home. If you go home remembering nothing else, which I guarantee you won't remember in two weeks, because I have evidence from this morning. Kingdoms. They're kingdoms. They're all kingdoms. (laughs) I saw one of his heads, one of those kingdoms one of those historic kingdoms, as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. That means he came back to life. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast 
And who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for how long? 42 months. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. John keeps saying this. We know it's a very specific period of time during which this is all taking place on planet Earth. He is speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Authority was given to him so that he could act for these 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Turn over to Revelation 17. Next week we will talk in more detail about those last couple of verses, but I just want to close up with this because chapter 17 of the book of Revelation will help us to fill in some of those blanks. Look at verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, and they have not received a kingdom yet, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So now we know what the ten horns are. The beast rose up out of the waters. According to chapter 17, verse 15, the angel speaking to John says, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, we'll get to her later, the waters which you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Okay, good. We don't have to interpret that. It's already interpreted for us. Angelic interpretation, that would be the correct interpretation. So it is up out of the peoples that this beast is going to rise up. And the ten horns which you saw, oh good, the beast has ten horns with ten diadems. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. These ten nations are going to join together by giving their kingdom to the beast. I've been saying all along that these ten toad nations are going to give their authority to the beast until the words of God should all be fulfilled. Because that's exactly what the prophets, especially Daniel, have all prophesied. They're actually going to turn over their authority to the beast because God already said that they were going to do it. So these nations, these Gentile foreign nations, these God-hating blasphemous nations are actually going to do exactly what God said they're going to do. Why? Because God's sovereign. And the woman who you saw is the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, we will get to all of that eventually. As we continue through the next couple of chapters, the things that I have laid out today, the things that I have spoken of in great big terminology today is going to become more specific so that we can identify, straight out of the book of Revelation and out of the Old Testament, we can identify who these characters are and what the future holds, what the Bible says about what's coming and we don't have to wildly interpret it, and we don't have to make things up. All I'm trying to do in this study of the book of Revelation is show you that you can actually read it for what it says and come away with a pretty good knowledge of exactly what God was prophesying for not only the future of the church, but the future of his people, Israel. 
You got it? I know that was a lot of stuff this morning. And I know every week I pour a lot of stuff on you. And I know it's hard to remember all of it as you demonstrated this morning. But Babylon. <laughs> Babylon. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. But I hope you're gaining something out of this. What you should be getting out of it is regardless of what comes, regardless of what happens in the future, our God reigns. Our God is sovereign. Our God has told us in advance that this is going to come. Jesus, when he was talking to Israel about their future, said, I told you all this in advance so that when it comes, you would know that I am God. God has already predicted these things. The purpose of prophecy in the Bible is not just to entertain our imaginations. The purpose of prophecy in the Bible is to prove yet again that God knows exactly what he's doing. This is his world, and he can do whatever he wants with it. And he has told us in advance what he's going to do with it. And we certainly see that from history and all the prophecies of history that have actually come true literally and physically. Therefore, I believe that the things we've read this morning are going to come true literally and physically the same way the whole rest of the Bible has. And that means you want to be on the side of Jesus Christ. You do not want to be on the side of the beast who's coming. That's right. One of the great hymns in our hymn. 354. It's a claim we could never make had Jesus himself not said, you are my friends. The king of the universe says to his children, you're my friends. And what a friend he is. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.